0: I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever, but don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Well welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host Janelle Wood. And friend, I'm excited that you are listening in for season five, where we are starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her story and also allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and faith. And so this month, our first episode featured my French friend, and we'll just call her my exchange niece, Zoe. Zoe shared about growing up in France how different it's been uh, coming to the U.S. and meeting people who are Christians, including living with a pastor and his wife um, and their kids. She talked about her skepticism um, of faith as well as her openness to it. And I loved our conversation and Zoe's honest questions. So if you haven't already, I highly recommend you go and check out that first episode with Zoe and hear her story. I will put a link in the show notes. And you can find uh, those at um, at findingsomethingreal.com, along with other things like free resources, a very occasional blog post, um, how you can financially help support this program, and other ways to connect. All of that can be found over there at findingsomethingreal.com. If you like this podcast, I would love to hear from you. Um, Zoe is here today. And Zoe, I'm really thankful you are. So hi. Hi. <laughs> so this episode will air like a week after the one that we recorded. Um, so it's going to sound like it's only been a week. But in reality, we haven't done a recording for a couple months. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And when I asked you, because she's downstairs in my daughter's room while I'm upstairs in our bedroom, it, we're, we're just you know, owning the technology here today. Um, but when I asked you if you were nervous today, you were like, no, not really. And I was like, man, already, this is like old hat for you um, doing podcast interviews. So you're a natural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you are coming to the end of your exchange year as we're recording this, it's almost May. Um, what are you most looking forward to at the end of your year here in America?
1: um probably my graduation
0: yeah because you're a senior and you'll get to do the walking and all of that cap and gown and yep yeah i will (laughs) (laughs) and you've got prom coming up yes also Yeah, that's awesome well zoe i'm really excited because i get to introduce you to my friend here today we have a very special returning guest Um, I was just telling him he's been on the podcast probably more than uh, any other guest. There might be a couple people who would tie. I I don't know. But Alan Crostick is a passionate guy, uh, someone whom I admire and I would describe as a bona fide Christian apologist. And for those of you unfamiliar with the apologist label, my understanding is that it just means someone who is prepared to give a gentle and respectful defense for their faith. And that's exactly who Alan is. Alan was once an agnostic, uh, very skeptical of belief, but something changed for him. Um, And he's talked about that on the podcast before. He may talk about it again today. I don't know. Um, But now he loves to share about why he believes the story of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and saving humanity is more than just some fantastic fairy tale. And it's actually the best thing to ever happen to humanity. He's one of our favorite guests here. Alan Krostek, thank you for coming back.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Uh, It's always a joy and a pleasure to have you here. Um, And Zoe asked a big question. As you know, there will definitely probably be other questions to this. But her question was, how can we know that God or someone is here or there to help us? How do we believe in something that's not easily felt or seen? Um, No big questions there. So um, Zoe, why did you ask that question? And then Alan, we'll get to you
1: because um so I grew up with like no religion I never been to the church and coming here with a house dad who is a pastor make me ask a lot of questions and for me it's hard to understand how we can believe in that because I never had that before and it was just like a big change and I wouldn't like understand and I don't know yeah know why.
2: Gotcha, all right. Well, that, that that's great. That's good. And so, um, so you're really just looking. What what are some evidences? What are some reasons, uh, to believe that a god exists? Is that essentially, kind of where we're going today? Yeah. Okay.
1: Why
0: do you believe, it, Alan?
2: Oh well, um, <laughs> <laughs> there's uh there's all sorts of reasons. I, I can't point to just one. Um, the uh the 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 catalyst for me, um was was a personal reason, and I. I've shared that before. I am fine sharing that again right now. Um, back when I was, uh, uh, 16, I was was diagnosed with a condition called ulcerative colitis. And, um, if you know anything about that condition, it's something that, you know, stays with you, doesn't go away or what have you, it causes a lot of pain. And, um, you know, and I, I remember around that time, um, I mean, it was really bad the year prior. Um, I was out of school for a while. They put me in the hospital pump me up on 80 milligrams of prednisone, prednisone, which is a prednisone, excuse me, uh, which is a steroid that just puffs your face up and just makes you look like a cabbage patch doll. And um, anyway, and uh, and I remember um, it came back again the following year. And I was in a lot of pain. And, and I remember my father came to me, I was in my room, I was up in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep. And he said, Alan, would you be interested in us taking you to a church to get people to pray for you? And at the time, I'm like, sure, whatever, you know, and immediately in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of these, you know, quirky televangelist on TV who are saying things like in the name of Jesus, people like that, you know, um, but I'm like, you know what, whatever, I'm sure you want to take me to something like that. That's fine. Um, you know, so the next morning, my mom, uh, goes to call various people that she knows, uh, that she had Bible study with. And um, the first woman she called, she goes, Linda, she goes, this is amazing. You're asking about this. She goes, this can't be a coincidence. She goes, "Um, there actually is a, is a pastor visiting a church nearby where you guys live. And um, God's done some amazing things in his ministry. She says, you know, when he was a teen, he was a heroin addict, um, gave his life to Christ and Jesus completely transformed him. And through his ministry, sometimes, you know, you hear about people who had various cancers getting healed, stuff like that. So that night, now it was October 17th, 197 uh, 1993. It was on a Wednesday night. Um, we walked into that little church and keep in mind, I had never been there before. My parents had never been there. The woman who told us about it had never been there. Um, you know, and there were other people in the room from different churches that were visiting. Not even everybody that was there went to that church and, you know, um, as we were listening to the service, the pastor said, you know, he, he spoke something about one woman first that I guess she thought was accurate and started crying. And I'm just standing there like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then all of a sudden he looked around and he says, there's a teenager here. There's a teenager God wants to minister to tonight. And I look around, there's other teens in the room and there's nothing about my appearance that would draw any attention to me. I look like a normal kid. And um, all of a sudden he locked eyes with me and he walked up to where I was and looked at me straight in the eye and said, let me tell you something. I don't know who you are. I've never seen you before in my life. You might be sitting, thinking you're sitting here in a normal church service, but God had your number. Get up and follow me to the front. God's going to shake you up, boy. So immediately I'm thinking, okay, what kind of weirdo cult did I just walk into? <laughs> right. Um, and I'm thinking, if you guys are going to try to manipulate me, you're walking up the wrong tree. Cause I'm not wired like that. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not a, a, an overly emotional person. Right. Um, I live more in my head than my heart, which has its strengths, but also has some disadvantages too. Right. So, um, follow up to the front and he looks at me and he says, I'll tell you what I see in you. I see something similar to what I saw last week. He says, you know, you have one foot in the church and one foot in the world because around that time, um, you know, I, I, I was kind of going through the motions, right. I I kind of professed belief in Christ, but it's, it was very nominal, meaning it, it was just in name only. Right. Um, but I still ultimately wanted to do what I wanted to do and live the way I wanted to live. And he looked at me and he says, let me tell you something, man, this world has nothing to offer you. And, um, he said, I'll tell you something else too. He says, the hand of God is on your life. I'm not necessarily saying you're called to preach or anything like that. I'm just saying the hand of God is on your life. And then he looked around at the congregation and he said, you know, there are, you know, there are, there are demon powers. And if there was somebody who's coming into this worldview, this probably sounds ultra bizarre to you. Um, But he says, you know, there are demons powers trying to turn our young people from God and God's not going to let it happen. And so he started calling people up to pray for me. And here's the deal. I want to preface by saying this. I'm not the kind of person that has experiences. I'm not that guy. All right. Um, I've never had anything like this happen since. But he put his hand where my abdomen had been hurting. Never mentioned colitis or anything. That wasn't even the, the point of why he was praying And he prayed for me. And as he was praying, I felt this warm sensation emanate from my torso up to my limbs. I've never felt anything like it. Haven't felt anything like it since. And he put his hand on my abdomen. He says, there it is right there. Be set free. And like that, um, all the symptoms of colitis were gone, just utterly gone. And, um, You know, I remember thinking, I'm I'm just like, Oh my God, there really is a God. He's not some abstract, um, nebulous concept. He's a real concrete reality. And I showed up on his radar. Right. Um, and later that week, um, I mean, all the symptoms were gone. They took me back to the gastroenterologist who would always conduct kind of a little examination on me. And, um, he examined me and he goes, this is remarkable. He says. Um, He says, you obviously must be in remission. He says, but that's not the remarkable thing. What's remarkable is there's not even a trace of it. You would never even know you had it. So um, it was just gone. Now, you would think that after all of that, I would have turned my life around. I didn't. I still kind of kept plowing on my own direction and things like that. But no matter what I did, like when I kind of went to go back my own way and just, you know, partake of other things, if you will, or what have you. Um, the pain would resurface, right? And I thought, okay, well, apparently it's back. And that was just the power of suggestion and smoking mirrors. And so I remember I went back to the gastroenterologist and he examined me again. And he says, I don't see anything. Are you sure this isn't in your head? I don't see anything ever since you came in, it's been gone. So it's almost like I wasn't allowed to go down that path anymore. Well, flash forward several years. This was in 1993. Um, I didn't tell any of my friends about it. I didn't want to look like a wacko. Um, and uh, I remember right around when I got to college, I took my first class in philosophy and I really started to question um, my faith for the first time, uh, critically examine it for the first time. And I remember in that class, the professor said, I want you to look in front of you, behind you, and to the left and to the right. Statistically speaking, one of those people you just looked at will be gone by the end of the semester. So I thought, well, clearly that's going to be me, you know, but what I found out is that my mind was wired for this particular subject. Um, It just came very easy with, with minimal effort, minimal study. Um, And what that did is, is it triggered me to think, okay, why do I believe this? Had I been born in another time or another location, another, you know, historical geographical location, wouldn't I believe something else? If I was born in the middle East, wouldn't I be a Muslim? right? Or or wouldn't I be a Hindu or what have you? Isn't what I believe just a geographical and historical accident, you know? And so, but that caused me to go back and think about that night. And I thought, well, what about that night? What do I do with that? You know? And, um, you know, so I thought, well, let's go over the events in my head. Let's see if we can come up with a naturalistic explanation for them. And I thought, okay, my mom called a woman who, you know, um, told her there was going to be a Bible study nearby with a visiting pastor. Okay. Dumb luck. All right. coincidences happen, Right. Um, you know, we showed up at that church the next, next night. And he described me and described me with such, such accuracy it seemed like to me. What, 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 what first of all, what, why did he pick me? Why me out of all the other teens in the room? Well, I thought, well, maybe it's because I was on the end of the row and that just made it easier. And that's why, you know, I'm like, well, what about the whole idea of one foot in the church, one foot in the world and kind of where I was, how I was living. That seems accurate. But I thought, okay, well, this is your teenage years. I mean, how many teens does that not apply to? Come on. Of course, it didn't explain how I knew extremely accurate things about my sister the following night who didn't follow that norm, right? Um, But I'm like, well, I I can't quite explain that, but I'll come back to that later, right? Um, And again, it's like, well, what about when he started praying for me? That sensation, I've never felt anything like that before. What was that? I was like, well, maybe it was just an, I don't know, maybe it was just an intense adrenaline rush or something I've never felt before. Who knows? You know, I'm like, well, what about my, my, my healing? Like it just kind of went away. What about that? I'm like, well, um, don't underestimate the power of the mind over the body, right? Faith faith fosters optimism and optimism can have a profound effect on one's physiology. So maybe it kind of worked as a a placebo effect, self-generating prophecy, if you will. You know, so, um, I remember at that time I I prayed I was like, okay, God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're not there, if you are there, you probably think I'm the most stubborn person in the world. Um, but I got to know either way, if you do exist, please show me who you are. And if not, then I'm just a dummy and I'm speaking to the air right now. Right. So, um, I became obsessed. I looked at all the evidence for God, all the evidence against God. Um, one week I'm an atheist, one week I'm a theist. It's just a seesaw back and forth. Um, and I, I realize I'm, I'm probably using terms that most people don't know. I think most people do know the term atheist um, as someone who denies God's existence, whereas someone who's a theist who affirms God's existence. Um, but uh, I kept going back and forth. And um, I, I I remember... Um, I, I remember certain like certain questions that I had. And I remember, um, I remember I went to a church and at the church, I remember the pastor stood up and he kind of, uh, it was a new church I went to and he kind of like toyed with the congregation. And he says, I got something to tell you guys. He said, I had a visitation from an angel last night and everyone looked at around and thought, what? And I'm thinking again, okay, what kooky place did I just walk into? And, uh, and he says, he says, and at first the angel appeared to me and I was scared to death. He says, the angel had to tell me, don't be afraid. He says, now I understand why that greeting was always, every time an angel greeted someone in scripture, it was always prefaced with that type of announcement. And um, he said, he gave me a message, an amazing message. And he says, I'm, I'm embarrassed and I'm kind of hesitant to tell y'all guys about it, but it's really exciting. And here's the message. My wife, Vicky and I are going to have a baby, another baby boy. He says, but here's the twist. I'm going to have the baby. I'm going to be the first impregnated man. And everyone's just dead silent. And then all of a sudden he starts cracking up laughing. He goes, now, how did I just make you guys feel? And people were like, I was about to leave. Another person was like, I was about to ask what you ate. And he goes, yeah, because I'm asking you guys to buy into something unbelievable. He says, but do you understand something? He says, that's essentially the first part of the Christmas story. We think about the virgin birth. That's something that's equally incredible and unbelievable. He says, and when unbelievers... um, People who aren't, haven't been exposed to church or hearing these claims for the first time and struggle with them, we're impatient with them. And we think, of course, this is real. But it's just because it's been so sanitized through us over the years. And immediately I thought, okay, this is a guy I, I can talk to, that I can be transparent about and pick his brain. And so I did. And I brought a lot of my questions to him. And this guy um, was very well-read, very knowledgeable. I mean, he knew his stuff. And he answered a lot of my questions to my satisfaction at that time. Um, you know, and I, and I remember, um, I remember one time I had a lot of doubts and I, you know, I thought, okay, I'm just gonna open my Bible where it may, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't recommend this doing Bible roulette, if you will, but I had it opened it and it, it opened up the Proverbs three, five, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own, own understanding. Don't try to be wise in your own eyes. And there was part of me that thought, well, am I doing that? I mean, I, I do want evidence, but am I, am I holding his, And I'm holding it to a higher standard than I would anything else. You know, it seemed to be speaking to me. And there were other things that continued to pop up like that. um, That seemed like it, it it got to a point. I start, had to start writing off too many things as coincidence going all the way back from my healing and the events of that night and other things. But in the end, um, the more and more I studied, the more and more the evidence for God just became too powerful for me. Um, you know, and we, we can we can talk about some of the arguments and evidence um, on the podcast today. Um, and especially when I looked into um, the historical evidence undergirding the claims of Jesus' resurrection. That was extremely compelling, too. And it got to a point where I almost felt like I would have to put my brain on a shelf to deny it any longer. You know, so in the end... Um, in the end, that's kind of my story, how I came to Christ. So um, do you have any questions about that? I can, before we kind of get into some of the the, the nitty gritty stuff.
1: Um, no, I don't think so. I just think it's a very interesting story. Uh, but I don't think I have any question about it. Okay. You've been going to
0: church with your host family now. You yeah. go regularly for, uh, what, the last nine months. What has that been like for you? Uh, Did anything that Alan said uh, resonate with you? Like, oh, this is kind of (laughs) weird.
1: Yeah. Yeah, especially the first time when people start singing with uh, their hands in the air and closing their eyes. And I'm the only one sitting and just looking around. And I'm like, what I am doing here? (laughs) And it was really, really weird to be there. But I like it now.
0: Yeah um what questions would you like to ask Alan specifically about uh like how do you know that that God exists like if you could ask I know that you and uh, Leone have asked about science and that's been something do you feel like that's a big question for you or do you want to know more about the historical evidence or what would you like to hear about
1: I don't know I just it still feels weird like I understand your story your story and like I can picture that but for me it's like I can understand that other people have that. But for me, it's still like, there's something in between me and like the whole uh, religion stuff. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like I understand. I live with people, I live with a pastor and everyone around me are like people that goes to the church and I go to the church, but I don't know. It still like, feels very far away from
2: me sure yep I, I i i can relate to that um unlike you though i mean I, I i've grown up in a christian family um but uh i i uh and i would almost say like in some in some place some people might think that's more of a plus for me and many times growing up i thought it was a negative because i wrote a lot of things off um, that my parents believed or taught as kind of odd or fanatical. Um, you know, so for me, it was actually more of a deterrent, I think. Um, but, uh, in terms of, you know, talking about scientific evidence, we can go there if you like, um, maybe we can start here. Um, let's see, maybe we can talk about what I like to call, uh, what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, I think that's one of my favorite arguments. Janelle, you're laughing. <laughs> well, I'm you like, laughing? That
0: sounds big. You're going to have to really break <laughs> it down. <laughs>
2: no. So um, the Kalam cosmological argument has a very, uh, it, it has a pretty interesting history. Um, it eventually, I think it eventually, it, it originally, I think, um, originated in, in Alexandria. Um, and over the years, at one point, it got picked up by Muslims who uh, championed it in various ways. Um, and then kind of went back to, uh, some other, you know, Jews and Christians who continue to champion it. <clears throat> but the idea is this, you can kind of think of it in three steps. Um, and I like to break it down into three steps because it makes it easy to remember, you know, where you have your premises and a conclusion that follows from them. All right. So you might say the first conclusion is this, whatever begins to exist has a cause. All right. Um, the second premise is the universe began to exist. And then what follows from that is your conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And what one can do in our, and what I'll spend some time doing right now is arguing for the truth of those premises um, and what, tell you why they're true. And then uh, we'll look at the, uh, the, the conclusion. You know what, what kind of properties would the cause of the universe have to have? We're gonna do a, a, a conceptual analysis of what kind of properties the cause would would need to would need to um, possess, all right. So the first the first premise: whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, that seems more plausibly true than false. I think many of us would agree. Yeah. And I, I think for at least three reasons. All right. One, it's rooted in the, the, the metaphysical principle that something doesn't come from nothing. All right. Out of nothing, nothing comes. To claim that something can come from nothing is to stop doing metaphysics and resort to magic, right? Um, and I've heard Craig say this a lot of times. A lot of the stuff I'm going to say right now, I feel like I'm mimicking one of my professors. Cuz I've heard him so many times, he is just in my head. But um you know, um, again, it would be worse in magic. I mean, at least in magic, when the magician takes a rabbit out of the hat, at least you got the magician. Not to mention the hat, right? But if you claim if you if you deny the first premise that whatever begins to exist doesn't have a cause, you have to believe that the universe just popped into existence at some point in the finite past for no reason whatsoever. Now, sometimes you'll hear popular magazines saying, well, well, not necessarily. Sometimes things do come out of nothing. Like So like on, on uh, quantum physics, they'll maintain that virtual particles arise out of the vacuum, the quantum vacuum, right? Or some, some versions of um, uh, the uh, origin of the universe, like the universe originating out of what's called the primordial vacuum. Isn't that an example of something coming from nothing? Actually, no, it's not, Um, it's misleading. When the lay person hears the word vacuum, they're thinking nothing. But in physics, the vacuum is not nothing. The vacuum vacuum is a sea of roiling energy, a fluctuating energy having a physical structure governed by physical laws. That is most certainly not nothing. And these models have to do with um, particles originating out of fluctuations of energy locked in the vacuum. So that's most definitely an example of something coming from something. Um, so that doesn't work. Um, so it, it, it's hard to deny something um, that's something that begins to exist as a, as a cause. Another reason is if something could come from nothing it, became, it becomes inexplicable why just anything and everything doesn't come from nothing. I mean, you and I aren't sitting here right now and you guys aren't afraid that an elephant's gonna pop into existence in the other room and start defecating on the carpet, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's you know. So what what is it about universes that would make that so special to come into existence out of nothing? Um, it, it can't be any properties it has because there's nothing there to have any properties, right? So there's that. And the other thing is, um, this is a principle that's constantly verified and never falsified, right? So I mean, that seems pretty basic, right? Um, Any questions on the first premise that whatever begins to exist has a cause? We good? Yeah, we're good. (laughs) All right. Uh, The second premise is the universe began to exist. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. All right. Because prior to the 1920s, um, no one believed the universe began to exist. They thought it was eternal, right? It was eternal, uncaused. Um, incorruptible and indestructible. Now things in the universe are moving and changing, but the universe itself was just there, right? And since it's eternal, it doesn't need a cause. Well, all that changed starting in 1917, Albert Einstein applied his theory of general relativity to the universe itself. And what he found when he did that, he was pretty dismayed at what what he found because he found a model of the universe that was either blowing up like a balloon or imploding in on itself. And so what he did to him, that was, that was just unacceptable. He introduced a cosmological constant, a fudge factor, to his equations to keep the universe static. But what this, what this resulted in is it resulted in a universe that was balanced on a razor's edge, where the least perturbation of matter, the, the transport of one piece of matter to, from one part of the universe to another would cause the whole thing to either explode or implode. Well, in the 1920s, Um, two other guys took Einstein's equations at face value. One was a Russian mathematician named Alexander uh, Friedman. And another one was a Belgian astronomer named um, uh, George Lemaitre. And they each independently came up with independent models of an expanding universe. Um, And you have to understand why this was so incredible to them. Because up until that time no one even thought that something like this was possible because the universe if it's expanding you know and, and a lot of people derisively call this the big bang but that's kind of a misleading term it gives a person the uh, the idea that you have an explosion taking place in pre-existing empty space but that's not the deal this was the origin of all space and time and all matter and energy right this was the origin of it a better way to think of this um Well, I'll I'll share this part first. So they came up with these models and this was further verified in 1929, a guy by the name of Edwin Hubble um, from tireless tireless observations at Mount Wilson Observatory. When he trained his telescope toward the night sky and looked at distant galaxies, they were redder in color than they were expected to be. And this was plausibly explained by the galaxy, by, by the light being stretched, the galaxies moving away at tremendous speeds from us, kind of working as a Doppler effect. So this was the first empirical proof that what Friedman and Lemaître came up with was true. The universe really is expanding. Um, and, And to kind of give an example of this, it'd be kind of like an example of what this is like with the universe expanding. It's space itself that is expanding. It's not that the galaxies are moving away in empty space. Space itself is expanding. A great way to explain this would be like blowing buttons on a balloon and blowing the balloon up. As the balloon blows up, the buttons move further and further from each other. That two dimensional surface, surface of the balloon is analogous to what is happening in three dimensional space. And what's interesting about that is, is that if you extrapolate that process back into the past, you know, where the universe is getting bigger and bigger, and bigger. If you reverse that, the universe, comes closer together and it gets greater in density and curvature until finally the distance between any two points becomes zero. You can't get, get any closer than that. And you reach what scientists call like cosmological singularity where you have infinite curvature, pressure, temperature, density, and so on. And that represents a boundary to space time. That represents the beginning of all space and time. All right. Now, are you following me so far? Yeah. Here's what's interesting about that. Um, and we can go into much more with this. There um, over the last 100 years, there has been a parade of attempts to try to subvert, try to avoid this conclusion because people didn't like it because it smacked of divinity. Um, it seems like the G word came up when you thought about this, right? Um, so you had a steady state model, you had oscillating models. Uh, quantum gravity models, um, chaotic inflationary models. I mean, just on and on you go. And every single one of them that tried to make the universe eternal didn't work out. Right? Um, the other thing is this, that points to a beginning of the universe. And that comes to the thermodynamic properties of the universe. Um, in other words, the amount of thermo- thermodynamic disorder, or what we call entropy in the universe, right? So to kind of give an example of entropy, the idea is unless energy is being fed into a system, it continues to go more and more disorderly over time. So to kind of give an example, like say if you have a bottle and inside is a vacuum and you inject molecules of gas in that bottle, um, what's gonna happen is the molecules are gonna evenly distribute throughout the bottle until they reach an equilibrium. You're not, for example, gonna find them all cluster in an orderly fashion toward a certain corner. And that's the same way that it is you know in, in reality. And so here's the idea. if the universe had existed for past eternity, um, then the universe as we see it, should be in a, in a state of heat death. Because see, over time, in a finite period of time, what would happen is all the energy would evenly disperse throughout the universe and we would reach a state of equilibrium where no more change and no more light is possible. Uh, life is possible. And the universe would um, end up being more and more cold, dark, and diluted, uh, which is what they call the heat death of the universe. So the question is, if that's going to happen, if that's inevitable in a finite period of time, if the universe has existed for past eternity, why aren't we in a heat death already? You know, um, so that's kind of the deal. Now, we've had some people that tried to subvert it. Um, one was a guy by the name, last name of Boltzmann. And he says well maybe the universe is in a state of overall equilibrium and maybe just by chance alone there are fluctuations of orderly regions within all that equilibrium and he called these orderly regions worlds you know um but he says maybe we're just part of one of those worlds one of those orderly regions and that's why we see the order we do well that immediately got shot down because um people realize scientists realized they were like just like hey um if we were we should find we should, um, we should be experiencing a much smaller region of order than what we see when we look out into the universe today. Just something no bigger than the size of our solar, solar system would have been sufficient, rather than a universe that is 13.7 billion years old and, and see all this order all around us. So that quickly got shot down. It just was vastly unlikely. Um, not only that, it seemed more likely that you know your more probability, if that were true, would be that you're just kind of in a small patch of order just witnessing what appears to be an orderly universe. That's all of an illusion, right? So the idea is both the expansion of the universe and the thermodynamic properties of the universe both point to it having a beginning, right? So now the question comes, well, what kind of properties would such a cause of the universe have to have? Well, think about what the universe is. The universe is the sum total of all contiguous space, time, matter, energy, and so forth. So the cause of the universe would have to be beyond those things. If it weren't, it would just be part of the universe to be explained. So the cause would have to be a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, non-physical cause. But what could possibly fit those criteria? Well, there's several different ways to look at this, several different arguments or angles that I can give you. First of all, when I try to think of what, what would fit that criteria, I can think of only two things. One would be something like an abstract object, like a number. The other would be an unembodied mind, right? Well, an abstract object um, doesn't stand in causal relations. That's definitive of what it means to be an abstract object. The number seven, for example, doesn't cause anything. Well, that would leave us with an unembodied mind, um, you know, which is what many people think of when they think of God. So that's one way to think of it. Another way to think of it, it would be this way. There's another angle. Um, anything you look at can be explained in one of two ways. right? So you can have what you might call a scientific explanation in terms of laws and initial conditions or you can have a personal explanation in terms of an agent and his volitions, right? Um, So for example, and I I think I used this on a, a previous episode, Janelle, but if I walked into the kitchen and I saw a kettle boiling on the stove and I asked my wife, hey, why is the kettle boiling? She could give me one of two answers. One way she could answer would be like this. Well, the heat of the flame is being conducted to the copper bottom of the kettle to the water, which causes the molecules to vibrate more more violently until they break the surface uh, surface, uh, tension of the water and are thrown off in the form of steam. That's one answer she could give me. Or she could say, I'm making a cup of tea. Would you like some, right? The first answer would be an example of a scientific explanation. The second answer would be an example of a personal explanation. And both are are equally legitimate forms of explanation, although in some contexts, one would be appropriate, whereas the other one would be inappropriate. Now, when it comes to the first physical state of the universe, it cannot be a scientific explanation in terms of laws and initial conditions, because it is the first physical state. In, in, In other words, there's nothing prior to it from which you could deduce it by laws acting on prior conditions. There is no prior. It's the first physical state. So the only explanation that would be available would be a personal explanation in terms of an agent and his volitions. But again, that would give you a personal creator. Um, A third way to look at it would be like this. Um, It's the only way I know how one would explain how to get an effect with a beginning from an eternal cause, right? Um, Because if, if the cause is sufficient to produce its effect, right, then if the cause is permanent and always there, the effect should be permanent and always there too. So to give you an example, for example, if, if the cause of water freezing is for the temperature to be below zero degrees Celsius, Um, then if the temperature were zero degrees Celsius from past eternity, um, it would be impossible for the water to just begin freezing a finite time ago, any water that was around would have been frozen from past eternity, right? So the question is, how do you have a eternal cause produce an effect like our universe that only began to exist a finite time ago, 13.7 billion years? And the only answer to that conundrum that I can make sense of that would be is if the cause were a personal being endowed with freedom of the will, who can spontaneously create a new effect without antecedent determining conditions. All right. So um, that would be one way to look at this. Um, And so if that's the case, then what that means is you have this. It would mean that the cause of the universe would have to be a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, non-physical, enormously powerful, personal cause, or what we might call God. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does.
2: Do you you have any questions about that?
1: The thing is, I understand what you mean, but they cannot have prior thing to something that not exist and just like expand and I agree with that. It's really hard to like get, but for me, I think it would make more sense to believe that than to believe that it's something else that like creates universe because it's just how I always thought it was. Like, I don't know, it's like thinking of that to add another belief because I don't know, I just, I never had that before. For me, it was only one way to like. That was the scientific explanation, and that was the right way, and that's how it's been and still is.
2: Yeah. So notice something though. Notice that I'm, for the to bolster the proof of the second premise, because here's the thing. If you accept both premises, the truth of both premises, you have to accept the conclusion. The only way because this is a deductive argument. And what that means is that if the premises are true, it's impossible for the conclusion to be false. It doesn't matter whether you don't like the conclusion. It doesn't matter if it's not meaningful or whatever. Um, The only way that you can get out of it. So like if somebody said, I don't agree with that, my first question is gonna be, okay, well, which one of those premises do you reject and why? But otherwise, I mean, if you accept the truth of the premises, you're obligated to accept the truth of the conclusion. Um, See, so th- this is the deal. For me, I don't care about what I feel. All I care about is whether my C follows logically from my A and my B. That's it. So that's why I'm asking, what questions do you have? Um, You know, because you would would, to to deny that conclusion, you would have to deny one of the premises. Yeah.
0: What premise would you deny, Zoe? That it has to Um, be, there has to be a creator.
1: Well, yeah, because for me, it doesn't make sense. But I don't know. That's makes me weird now.
2: (laughs) <laughs> so, but no, it, it's good. I mean, it's good to be be challenged this way. Um, the thing is, it, it's like in my own life, it's like, I don't want to just believe something because that's what I've always believed, right? Um, I don't want to believe in God because I come from a culture where that's people believed. I don't want to believe in the Islam conception of Allah because that's what I always believed, right? Um, all of our beliefs are historically and geographically conditioned. That doesn't necessarily mean that what we believe is false. The question is, is there good evidence? All I care about is the evidence. So, the question would be, which which premise would be would you reject? Would you reject one, whatever begins to exist has a cause? Would you reject two, the universe began to exist? Um, when we talk about our conceptual analysis of the cause, you know. Um, You can ask which one of those do you exist, do you reject and why? So there's a, there's a, a maxim that I like that I hold to. And that's this criticism without alternative is empty, right? So a lot of times if I ask somebody, you know, like if someone says, I I don't know if I believe that God exists, there's not enough proof. You know, I don't see any evidence and I'll ask them, okay, well, let me ask you something. What kind of, what, what would evidence God, what would evidence for God look like to you? You know, and a lot of times I get silence. You know, um, I'm like, okay, well, it makes no sense to say you don't have evidence if you have no conception of what that would even look like. See, um, sometimes you hear people say it's irrational to believe in God. Well, well why? Um, believing in fairies and leprechauns, that's irrational. Believing in God is more like believing in atoms or quarks or black holes. The process is exactly the same. You follow the evidence of what you can see okay. to conclude the existence of what you cannot see. In other words, the effect needs a cause that's adequate to explain it. Um, And see, one of the things I'm talking about is like, I don't see anything rational and reasonable about believing in God. A big bang needs a big banger. Um, (laughs) A a complex set of instructions requires an engineer. A blueprint requires, um, requires a designer. A moral law requires a moral law giver. These aren't leaps of faith. These are steps of intelligent reflection. Therefore, when I ask somebody what exactly is a rational believing in God, I, I think it's completely in order. So
0: Can I can I ask a question? Just uh, yeah. I know this isn't one that we prepared or anything like that, but it seems to me, and I'm not scientific at all. In fact, my eyes start to glaze over when I hear some of these big words of God made people differently, and there's some people that just like love philosophical and scientific things. I'm not necessarily one of them. Everything you say, Ellen, I like Boiled down to like a few points that I hold (laughs) on to. Uh, But I still love it because um, it's awesome. But um, it seems to me that atheism is something newer. Um, That if you look through history, most people believed in a creator because basically the same argument that you just gave to Zoe, which is if you look around and you look at the things that you can see, you're gonna believe that this was all created by something. what what's given rise to atheism in the last couple hundred years or am i wrong has has there been atheists throughout um history because i think um i, I mean i'm watching zoe's face I, that's something i am good at <laughs> and i know that this is a lot and um sorry geez. zoe <laughs> no, that's okay. no i mean i think she also am i right i think you're appreciating this too like yeah. you're hearing a scientist share all these things um but uh i would love to know because it seems again i'm not a history buff i'm not a phil- uh, philosopher um but looking at france's history they did have a lot of faith for for many many years yes. um so what has changed in the last couple of hundred years
2: I think one thing that's changed is come, we come down to the Enlightenment, right? During the time of the Enlightenment, so that was the idea where people started moving away from just just accepting something due to, to, to un, you know to uh, due to divine um, authority or whatever, and you know we're going to try to look at things with you know unfettered human reason, and try to do it from that. And here's the thing: you might I I um I'm all about reason. Um, I mean, you'll notice I'm not giving I'm not I'm not going to give you an argument you know, just believe it feels good. You're not going <laughs> to hear that from me. Um, sorry, but you're not. Um, I, I, there's all sorts of reasons. I think that somebody could be an atheist. One could be the general confusion. Um, I, it, the other thing is too, I mean, I, sometimes it, it's easier to, and I, it's hard to answer. I, I different reasons for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, some people legitimately like like me, I, I, I feel like I just, I didn't have an ulterior motive. I just wasn't sure Um, I wasn't convinced. I had to look at the arguments, Um, you know, at the end of the day, and I've said this before, um, you know, feelings are wonderful, but they mean exactly jack squat when it comes to evaluating truth claims. Um, At the end of the day, I want to know whether something follows from evidences or reason. And I've used the example before, like if I'm, if I'm driving in my car, And I see a tree in front of me and I say, well, you know, it's just not meaningful for me to believe there's a tree there. I I don't like that idea. It's not satisfying to me. Well, that tree is going to kill me. Right. Um, Or, you know, I I don't like the idea that eating Twinkies all day long is going to make me gain weight. I like to believe it's going to give me six pack abs. (laughs) You know, um, that doesn't make it true. Reality doesn't give a rip about what your deepest feelings or preferences are. And it's no different when it comes to spiritual reality. Um, But I, uh, and, and, and here's the thing. I, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of people have the wrong idea of what faith is. A lot of people think faith is believing something without evidence. That's not the biblical concept of faith. The biblical concept of faith is the Greek word pistis, which means active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Um. Therefore, faith and reason are like two wings on an airplane. Faith is not a substitute for the evidence. It's a response to the evidence. Um, In terms of why some people don't believe in God, I know know some people just they want to live the way they want to, and they don't want the idea that there's a higher power that's going to hold them accountable. That's true. That doesn't follow for everyone. some people uh just you know they're they're confused about it other people it's maybe there are certain things in their life they're doing because i do believe our behaviors and feelings also impact the way we think Mm -hmm. um you know sometimes the way we think can impact the way we behave and feel but sometimes it can go the other direction too so i don't know that's that's a hard one for me to like pinpoint and just make a broad sweeping statement with yeah it'd be Um, interesting
0: to look into the history a little bit more of europe and I know um
1: things have changed a lot.
0: Yeah. Zoe, what's going through your head right now? I'm I'm trying to read your face.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things. I really like uh what you say, Ellen, with the everything comes because of a cause, if I say it right. Cause a cause, yeah, yes. Like and I'm just thinking about that and it actually makes sense. Like you needs to have a reason to like begin like start something but i don't know it's like weird in my mind now (laughs) well good you just put a rock in your shoe that's what there you go (laughs) (laughs) i know it's (laughs) fine
2: janelle's like i've done so many interviews al i know what he's going to say before he says it um (laughs) but yeah you're, you're absolutely right that's that's my goal my goal is not to talk to somebody and have them run into the foot of the cross and become a christian if that happened that would be wonderful i would love that um but if you're like me it doesn't work that way um i'm just here to put a rock in your shoe to give you something to think about (laughs) worth thinking about that's going to poke at you in a good way (laughs) something that you can't ignore over time yeah um because i i had lots of conversations with friends growing up and sometimes they would make certain points and i would argue against them i wouldn't concede to them but then in my quiet moments of reflection i wouldn't forget them and i kind of bounced ideas and rolled them around in my head and sometimes thought, yeah, it's kind of hard to get around this. Um, It's one of the reasons. um, And we can talk about this next argument. But this next argument, or at least this type of argument, was one of the things that caused the world's foremost philosophical atheist, Antony Flew, to become a Christian. Or not a Christian, pardon me, but to believe in God. Um, I think it was back in 2005 Um, on the basis of arguments for design or what's often called the teleological argument. was kind of what led him there, you know, and I remember the atheistic community was kind of scandalized by this and they think, well, well, maybe he's just getting old and he's senile. He's just not seeing things clearly. And, um, you know, he, he, I remember him having an interview. He goes, I've said all my life that we should follow the reason where it leads, no matter what he that's always been my maxim. It always has been. And now just because other people don't like the conclusion that my reasons led to, they want to write me off as senile. I don't think so um sharp guy um i don't know if he ever became a christian i I hope he did you know you hear about these deathbed conversions and so forth i don't know but um i never met the guy personally one of my professors was really good friends with him he debated him a couple times on um you know the resurrection of jesus there were really good debates um i can send you some links or send some uh janelle some links if you ever want to watch them yeah um but really really kind guy i i I hope he did. I don't know. Um, but, um, another one would be, th- be this again, the, the design argument what's often called the fine tuning argument. Um, and here's the deal. A lot of people just assume that if given enough time and given enough luck, that the universe would eventually pop out life forms like ourselves eventually, right somewhere in the cosmos. But we now know over the last 50 to 60 years of what we've studied, that that doesn't seem to be the case it actually seems like the opposite is true. Um, Scientists have been shocked by their discovery of how complex and delicate a balance of initial conditions must be given in order for life to originate or evolve anywhere in the cosmos. And it's this delicate balance of initial conditions that's been come to be called the fine tuning of the universe for life. Now, here's the deal, fine tuning is is of two sorts. Um, One has to do with the constants of nature. Another has to do with what what we might call um, arbitrary physical quantities. And I'll explain what I mean by both. All right. So by, by the constants of nature, um, when, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find in them certain symbols that stand for unchanging quantities, like the gravitational constant or the fine structure, constant, stuff like that. Right. Um, that's what we mean by constants of nature. And the values of these constants are not determined by the laws of nature. You could have a universe with the exact same laws, but with different values of those constants. And you would be looking at a very different universe. Things will look very different, All right? Now, what about the second one? Um, There are certain arbitrary physical quantities that are kind of put into the early universe as, as initial conditions. And because they're arbitrary, they too are not determined by the laws of nature. Um, One example would be the, uh, we talked about this when we were talking about the Kalam, would be the amount of thermodynamic disorder or what we call entropy in the early universe, right? It's just kind of put in as an initial condition and the laws of nature take forward and operate and the universe develops from there. Um, And if the value of these initial conditions were altered just by by a hair's breath. You'd be looking at a very different universe. All right. So I want you to understand by fine tuning, I'm not using that as a synonym for design. By fine tuning, we just mean that the values of these constants and quantities must fall within extremely narrow parameters for the existence of intelligent life anywhere. All right. So, I want to give you some examples of fine-tuning. And before I do, I'm I'm going to throw some numbers at you because I want you to have an appreciation for what I'm about to share, All right? It's been said that the number of seconds um, throughout the history of the universe is somewhere around 10 to the power of 17. That's a one followed by 17 zeros. Okay. And that the number of subatomic particles in the known universe is somewhere around 10 to the power of 80. That's a one followed by 80 zeros. Now to call those numbers big is an understatement. Obviously I, I, I can't wrap my round around numbers, my mind around numbers that big, but keep those numbers in mind and, and, and consider this. It's been said um, that if you altered the, the weak, the subatomic weak force, now the, the weak forces uh, operates within the, the nucleus of an atom, right? If either that or, or if even the gravitational constant were altered by just one part in 10 to the 100th power, that would result in the universe not permitting any life whatsoever. Um, if you alter the value of the cosmological constant, that's, that controls the uh, acceleration of the expansion of the universe. If its value were altered by just one part in one to the power of 120, you would have a universe that prohibited life. Um, and here's the one that really blows my mind. Uh, Roger Penrose, who was a brilliant physicist from Oxford University, he calculated the odds of the low, the universe's early low entropy state existing by chance alone, and he said it would be in the order of one chance out of ten to the power of ten to the power of one hundred twenty three. I don't even know what that number means, all right? But to get to, to give you an example, I mean, to have an accuracy of ten to the power of sixty would be like firing a bullet across the known universe—that's twenty billion light years and nailing a one inch target. Mm. That's the type of precision we're talking about here. So the examples of fine tuning, they're everywhere. They're, they're various, they're multiple, they're unlikely to go away at all with the progression of science. They're here to stay. Now, um, I wanna, I wanna um, anticipate some objections because I think somebody might hear this and think, well, I mean, who's to say if the constants and, and quantities were different, that maybe other forms of life could exist. But that would be to underestimate how disastrous this would be. Um, you have to understand when scientists talk about a universe being life permitting, they don't have in mind present forms of life. By life, they're referring to the property of an organism to take in food, um, extract energy from it, grow, adapt to its environment, and reproduce. Anything that fulfills those functions counts as life. In order for life so defined to exist anywhere in the cosmos, the constants and quantities have to fall within these extremely narrow parameters. See, a lot of people don't understand. Without fine-tuning, not even matter would exist, not even chemistry, much less planets for life to evolve on in the first place. Um, I mean, this is huge. Um, you know, some people might say, well, okay, you're talking about the constants and quantities. What if the laws of nature were different though? I mean, maybe if, the laws of, if there were different laws of nature, the constants and quantities having different values wouldn't be so disastrous. Now here's the deal, that may be true, that might be false, but we're not worried about that and here's why. We have no idea what those type of universes would be. What we're worried about are the universe governed by the same laws because by changing the constants and quantities, we can see what would happen and it would be disastrous. And I like how um, the philosopher John Leslie illustrates this point, he goes, imagine this, He says, imagine you have a single solitary fly resting on a blank, large blank area of the wall. He says, a single shot is fired and the bullet pierces that fly. He says, now imagine that outside of that blank area, throughout the rest of the wall, the wall is covered with flies such that a randomly fired bullet would likely hit one of them. He goes, nevertheless, it remains extraordinarily improbable that a randomly fired bullet would would strike that single solitary fly in the large blank area, and he says, "Here's the deal: a life-permitting universe is a lot like that solitary fly, and the blank area uh, represents all the possible, all those possible universes where, you know, you have the same governed by the same laws, but have different values of the constants and quantities." He says, "The point is, among that lot, among universes governed by the same laws, um." there are overwhelmingly more life-prohibiting universes. Trying to get a life-permitting universe from that group, um, the probability is practically zero, right? So it's exquisite how narrow those values have to be. So now here comes the question, what's the best way to explain this exquisite fine-tuning of the universe? And there seem to only be three possible alternatives. One would be physical necessity, that the constants and quantities must have the values they do. The second one would be chance, right? That they just had the the values they do by accident. And the third would be design that they were designed to have the values that they do. So let's think about each one of those. And and, and should I stop and just ask, do you have any questions so far? I'm kind of going on on.
1: No, I, I get what you mean. And I think it's really, really interesting
2: Okay. Just stop me if you need me to stop <laughs> and okay. answer the question. Janelle, are you good too? Do you have, you can interject or?
0: <laughs> you, you just keep going.
2: <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> See, I, I, here's the thing though. A lot of people, times when people ask for evidence for God, it's like, if you can't give it to me in a shallow 10 second soundbite, I don't want to hear it. Well, I got news for you. Real things aren't simple.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I remember C.S. Lewis talking about this. He says, you know, looking at the table seems like simple. Seems simple, but once you get into the atoms bouncing off of the table and what that does to my retina and what those do in my brain, what you, what you call seeing the table lands you into all sorts of complexities and mysteries you can hardly get to the end of. You know, so I remember him talking about, he says, it makes no sense to ask for something more than simplicity and then complain when it's not simple. And right now we're talking about God. right? Um, we're talking about the source. You know, I, I, again, yeah, on, on, your, on your view right now, if he exists, I'm weighing this hypothesis. Um, would be the source and the ground of all being and would have created every complex and variegated thing that we see. So this is a big question. It's not a small question. Um, So if looking at a table is complex, this is gonna be complex. Um, So here's the deal, which one of these alternatives, right? Physical necessity, chance or design. Let's start with physical necessity. On this view, the constants and quantities must have the values they do, which would be very implausible. Because this would mean that a life prohibiting universe is impossible. It must be life permitting. But like we already talked about, the values of the constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. Um, now, sometimes scientists speak of what's called a theory of everything or what's called a TOE, a T-O-E, theory of everything. Okay. And by that name, you would think, OK, this apparently offers a physical explanation of everything, including fine tuning but that's not true. Names can be misleading. Um, A successful theory of everything would unify the four fundamental forces of nature, gravity, electromagnetism, the weak force, and the strong force. It would unify them into one single force carried by one single particle. Now, don't get me wrong, that would be a great simplification to physics, but it would by no means explain everything, let alone fine-tuning. In fact, the most promising candidate for for a theory of everything would be in theory what's called superstring theory, and for this theory to work there have to be eleven dimensions. Yet the theory can't explain by why just that many dimensions would exist, um, and it's also consistent um, with there being an order of like ten to the 500th power possible ways that the universe could be, most of which are life prohibiting, with different values of the constants and quantities. So it doesn't even predict a uniquely life permitting universe. So that doesn't work Um, so much for physical necessity. Well, what about chance, right? What do we do with chance? Now, sometimes people will say, well, what what about this? I mean, think of the analogy of a lottery, right? A lottery where a lot of tickets are getting given out, the odds of any one person winning is highly improbable. Yet someone's gotta win, right? I mean, it would be unjustified for the person who wins to say, you know, the odds of me winning was 20 million to one. Therefore, the lottery must be, be rigged because I won. Right? There would be something wrong with that. So in the same way, people will argue, well, some universe has got to exist. And so you don't see it would be unjustified for the winner of you know, whatever the universe lottery, so to speak, to say, well, because my universe exists um, and that's equally as improbable as any other universe it would be unjustified to say it must be design, not chance, right? So here's the problem with that analogy. And I think it's a a great objection because it helps us to zero in on where people get this wrong. Um, The argument isn't why this particular universe exists. It's why a life permitting universe exists. A better analogy would be this. It would be like to have millions or billions and billions of white ping pong balls mixed in with one single black ping pong ball. And one would randomly be chosen. And you were told if a black one was chosen, you'd be allowed to live. But if a white one were chosen, you're going to be shot, right? Now, granted, any particular ping pong ball that rolls down that chute is going to be equally improbable. Nevertheless, it's vastly more probable that you would get a white ping pong ball versus a black one, right? In the same way, any particular universe existing is equally improbable, but it's vastly more probable that it would be a life prohibiting universe, not a life permitting one. That would be the right way to see that. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, now, some people will say, well, well hold on. I, I don't think that any, any explanation is needed. Because I mean, it, the only type of universe we can observe is one that's life permitting. That's the only kind that we can see. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Um, this is what's called the anthropic principle, the idea that you can only observe uh, properties of a universe that's compatible with your existence. But I mean, th- this is clearly false. That, 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 I mean, it's fallacious reasoning. Just because that's the only type of universe you can observe, it doesn't follow that therefore there's nothing to be explained. So to give you an example of to give you an analogy of this, pretend you're out traveling, maybe some other third world country, and you get arrested under trumped up drug charges, right? And you're carried out and you're put in front of 100 trains marksmen at point blank rage who are getting ready to execute you. And you have the blindfold around your, your head and you hear the shout, ready, aim, fire. All the guns go off. And then to your surprise, like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm still alive. All 100 of the trains marked men missed. Now, what should you conclude from that? Well, I shouldn't be surprised that all, all 100 marksmen missed. After all, if they hadn't missed, I wouldn't be here to be surprised about. It. No, that would, be, that would be stupid, right? Um, you shouldn't be surprised that you don't observe your dead but you should be surprised that you observe that you're still alive in light of all 100 marksmen missing. In fact, you'd probably conclude that it was done on purpose, that it was designed that way by someone for some reason, right? Now, the only way that the anthropic principle would work, it it doesn't eliminate the need for an uh, an explanation, is if it were conjoined with what's called a many worlds hypothesis or a multiverse theory, right? And the idea here is that you have this world ensemble or multiverse where our universe is just one of many other universes that exist, preferably an infinite number of them. Right. And since somewhere in that horde, you got to have life permitting universes somewhere. Right. That's why you observe the universe that you do. Now, what can be said for this proposal? Well, one way to answer this would be to show that the multiverse itself involves fine-tuning. In order, in other words, in order to be scientifically credible, you have to propose some mechanism for producing the many worlds. Because here's the deal, the many, if the many worlds hypothesis, if this multiverse hypothesis is to be successful in showing that the fine-tuning can be explained by chance alone, then the mechanism that produces the many worlds better not itself be fine-tuned. Otherwise, you've just kicked the problem up a notch. And now you can ask, why is the multiverse fine-tuned? And there's been many proposals for like what could cause the mechanism, but they're so vague and it's not clear that the physics behind them would not be fine-tuned. I mean, again, suppose in theory is the physics of the multiverse. Like we've seen, there's no, it can't explain why there would be just 11 dimensions. And it can't explain why the mechanism that would produce any of those 10 to the 500 some worlds um, would not be fine-tuned. So just proposing this as a possibility isn't enough. You got to do better than that. The other thing is this, and I didn't, I didn't explain this when I go into more nitty gritty with the Kalam Cosmological. <laughs> um, do you want me to stop Janelle?
0: <laughs> like, more nitty gritty. <laughs> like, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm wondering, do you, you've got to teach this right, Alan, you've got to have classes where you go deep into some of this stuff, because it makes you alive when you're talking about it. I can see that you you just feed <laughs> off of this. I know there's people listening who do too. I, that's wonderful. I'm not one of those people, but I love watching Zoe's face while you're talking because I can tell that even though it's a lot, she's also, you're you're teaching her something she's never heard before. Before you add more to the nitty gritty of the Kalam argument, did I get that right?
2: But well, we're going over fine-tuning oh, now. Oh, the fine-tuning, I'm going sorry. The ahead. <laughs> I, I missed that. <laughs> I, again, please feel free to stop me. I, no, 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 no,
0: no. You know what? It's great. And I love that. Uh, I feel like I know you well enough now that I can tease you about it. Uh, but <laughs> Zoe, where are you with this? Because one thing I know about Alan, because he has been on here a number of times. And is that I,
2: Alan will not shut up. No. Go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I know about him is that he is uh, an open book. And he is genuine. So if you, after, you know, at any time, have questions about any of the things that he's talking about or about God's existence, um, I I know uh, that he would welcome an email or correspondence that way. Because obviously he's, I told you before we met him today, did I not, that he would put a lot of care and time into this? And he has clearly... What has he said that has stood out to you the most in this conversation?
1: Um, So since the beginning, it's the, I really like, like I told before the, anything happened because of the cause. And I also asking myself about the, all the chances stuff that, I mean, that can happen, but like, it also needs something to happen. Mm-hmm. Like they can just be dead,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah, that's oh, that's so weird mm-hmm.
2: yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, so I know uh when you said something about <laughs> Alan when you said something about uh what did you say uh when people ask these questions and they just want a sound bite, I'm like well i I want a little bit more than a sound bite, but I need a little <laughs> bit like rain in a little bit here Alan. Uh, <laughs>
2: My bad, my bad. No, no. So
0: um, bef- I don't want to go into de- uh, into deep uh, detail on all of these different things, but I know that you know what I'm going to ask you here. There's a lot of different arguments for God uh, and his existence. Um, would you briefly uh, go through? <laughs> sure.
2: I want to meet um, your wife so bad.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, anyway. Um So would you briefly go through, uh, what some of those arguments are and, uh, and then when Zoe comes back to this episode and she listens in a few months from now and she goes, man, that was a real rock in my shoe, uh, and another rock in my shoe, um, I want to know more about this. Uh, she can know more. And the person listening can know more. You're going to be on here again if you are okay with me teasing you about. Uh, sure. Yep. Go. And yeah, no uh, I, I, love, I love that you go into deep detail on these things because it shows that you care and that you um, are passionate about the Lord. And that's what matters. So anyway, please answer cool. that question. <laughs> um, I'll,
2: I'll, go ahead, I'll go ahead and stop there with Pianti. My, my point is for that, Physical, physical necessity and chance don't cut it. And if you think of that argument like this, you know, premise one, the fine tuning of the universe for life is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two, it's not due to physical chance or necessity. Conclusion, therefore, it's due to design. Um, you know, so um, that would be two. So like the, the Kalam shows you that God is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. The fine-tuning argument shows you that God is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. Then you have what's called the argument from contingency, and that's the idea that God is the best explanation for why anything exists at all rather than nothing. Um, And then you have the moral argument, that God is the best explanation for objective moral values and duties. Um, These And what I will is, I will send a link to either you or Janelle, however you want to do it that goes over much more depth than this and will not make you feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, cause I get that's more than likely what I'm doing right now. Um, but uh, what I'm going to do is, cause a, a lot of this is a pretty much verbatim from the stuff that I've learned from professors, primarily William Lane Craig with his, um, with his uh, 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 ministry, Reasonable Faith. What he has on that ministry He has what's called the Defenders class, which is his Sunday school class. Um, That as far as I'm concerned, is the best Sunday school class out there. Um, He was the reason I went to Biola. I wanted to learn under him and um, or get the the possibility to learn from him from time to time. But he's a uh, world renowned philosopher um, and very adept when it comes to the science. And he goes over everything in there, all the arguments for God's existence, all the objections and the rebuttals and all of that. And I can send you that. I can I can think of no other better resource to send that to you. Um, Another good resource is uh, J. Warner Wallace. Uh, I love I love the way he does it, because he's able to um, he's able to present it in such a way where you're looking at it from like a uh, courtroom drama. Um, that I think resonates better with people. Um, so he's, he's a good resource as well. Um, I will throw a couple other things at you. Um, these aren't really long, extensive arguments, but um, when you look at the world today, there's a lot of things in our world, even happening now um, that we're largely ignorant about. Even among, like, uh, uh, back in 2012, an atheist named Thomas Nagel, who's a distinguished professor of both philosophy and law at New York University, wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. And the subtitle was something like Why the Materialist Neo Darwinian Concept of Mind and Consciousness is Most Certainly False, or Why the the Materialist Neo Darwinian uh, conception of the world is almost certainly false this is an atheist writing that now i, I don't know if you're familiar are you familiar with what uh with, with what naturalism is um,
1: um if you can explain it a little bit more i would help yeah. me. like i have the basics but
2: naturalism is probably the most popular form of atheism it's the idea that the only thing that exists are those things that can be studied by the natural sciences like physics and chemistry and as such, there's no such thing as God or any supernatural realm, right? Mm. So he's writing this book claiming that the naturalistic neo-Darwinian model doesn't work. That it doesn't account for mind and consciousness. At, at best, it's incomplete. And man, he got a lot of flack for writing that book. But this is an atheist writing that. That's pretty impressive. Um, Some other things that are cool and worth looking into are um, some of these uh, double blind prayer experiments that have been done over recent years. Um, The the, the, the prototypical one was, um, I I say recent years, I mean, I'm looking back toward the eighties now, but um, the the, the prototypical one was one that happened at a a San Francisco hospital over a 10 month period between 1982 and 1983. And there was a, a guy named Randolph Bird that conducted this experiment with 400 patients from a a coronary care unit at the hospital. And what he did is he had all 400 prayed for. He, you know, he'd asked them up front. He goes, is it okay if we get someone to pray for you? And you get some answers like, yeah, sure. Other answers like, yeah, I'm an atheist, but do what you want, whatever. Right. And here's the deal. Half of the people were prayed for the other half weren't. Now, I don't know how you can ethically justify this, um, I mean, to, to, me, this would seem like a paradigm case example of putting God to the test. So I, but regardless, I'll, 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 tell you the outcome. Um, it was blind, double blind, which meant that the patients didn't know who was praying for them. The doctors didn't even know much less the patients. And these patients were monitored in 26 medical categories. And all the people that prayed for them were either, uh, were born again, Christians, either Protestants or Catholics. And as a result of the experiment um those who are prayed for it were in, improved in 21 out of 26 medical categories which caused for this study to be published in a uh in a secular medical journal i mean it's in um it's in the southern medical journal volume 81 july 1988 number seven um you can go online and look at it i can send it to you yeah. um and it we'll says put that in,
0: in the show notes
1: we'll put the <laughs> yeah. link in the show notes. yes
2: but um <laughs> The interesting thing is even in the abstract it says something that this study shows that prayer to the judeo-christian god has a is beneficial and and has a a therapy a beneficial therapeutic effect for patients in a coronary unit Mm -hmm. um secular journal now a little bit later they tried to repeat this you know and that one i think there were 17 people praying for them they tried to repeat this because they thought this isn't very pc we only have christians praying for people so they tried it again. I can't remember the location, but this time they chose people from all walks of life. So you would have like a, a witch doctor um, a medicine, man from this part in the world or whatever, um, just all different ones. And they prayed for them in this double blind experiment. <laughs> and the results were that if you got prayed for, you did slightly worse hmm. than if you weren't prayed for. Um, so they did it again, this time again, with Christians, only Christians, uh, this time it happened, I can't remember the year, but it happened in St. Luke Hospital in Kansas, Missouri. Um, um, yeah, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And um, this time there were a thousand patients and all the prayers, they're all women. Um, I can't remember this. This one was a split between Protestants and Catholics or not, but they prayed for them again. And again, you got the same results that you did from the one in San Francisco that they improved. And it caused one, uh, one researcher to say something like, I don't get it. What's the problem? Does God only listen to the prayers from Christians? What's going on here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this, this, isn't, this isn't a study in a Christian journal or anything like that. These are secular medical journals. Um, then you have, um, you have stories from like from missionaries, like the missionary field. Um, I'll, I'll never forget one by, by Billy Graham. He told about a guy named John Patton. He was a missionary, and I can't remember what part of the world it was in. But the tribes people in that area were very hostile toward them. And one night they were coming to uh, to attack where they were staying, where, where they were staying. But anyway, they uh, the, the tribes people were coming to to attack them. And in the middle of the night, they just turned around and fled. Well, a little bit later, flash forward in time, the tribes people became Christians. And one of the tribes people asked James Patton, "He goes, I got a question. That night when we were coming." He said they were these huge men surrounding where you guys were staying with swords and in white robes, huge. What was that about? Who were they? And he had no idea who the heck they were talking about. Um, So the idea is like, you know, these were angels guarding over them. Uh, Another one that's really cool. Here's something else that's cool. I tell a lot of people, like if I teach a class, these are two books that you want on your bookshelf they're by Craig Keener. And what he did is he it's like, it's a two volume set. And he explored all of the healings, miraculous healings or whatever that have happened in the world. Some of them, um, have accounts of pre and post x-rays, pre and post cat scans, things like that. One of the ones that sticks in my head and one of those, one of those in there, it's a woman. I think she was from South Africa um, and she belonged to like a charismatic church, if memory serves me correctly. But she had a diseased spleen. You know, they did the uh, the MRI CAT scan or whatever it is. So the diseased spleen, so they operated on her and they had the spleen removed. Well, um, she went to her church and they all prayed. And when she came in for the post uh, the post-op checkup, she had a perfectly healthy spleen again. So what do you do with that? You know, pre and pro post CAT scans, you have disease spleen, no spleen, spleen. What do you do with that? Another account um, was by this surgeon. He talked about, I can't remember where this was, but um, they had this little boy that had a cleft foot and they were going to operate on the foot. And before they were operating, a pastor came in. And he says, do you mind if I pray for this young man? And the surgeon goes, yeah, sure. So they bowed down and they prayed. And the surgeon said, he says, I, I kept my eyes open. I, I got to be honest, I peeked. He says, as he was praying, he watched the foot unfold and go to normal. And by the way, the, Christ, the, the, the surgeon was not a believer. The surgeon was a non-Christian. I mean, for all I know, probably a Christian now, um, but he was a non-believer. I can send you some other uh, links online. Um, one I saw that kind of gives an account of one of his stories of a man who was blind and was prayed for and received his sight. So this stuff does happen. Um, if you want to get a more accessible book, uh, Craig Keener did a uh, more condensed version called Miracles Today. Miracles. It's a lot. And it has a lot of new ones in there, too. It's pretty impressive. But I mean, he he does his homework. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of kind of like a supernatural realm, this is really interesting. Um, Dr. Habermas, who was one of my professors and is renowned as one of the most... Oh, one of the most well-known authorities on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus in the world. Um, he's also a peer reviewer for the only peer reviewed journal on near death experiences, uh, that comes out of university of Virginia. And he says, you know what I'm interested in, I'm not interested in the ones where they just tell the story and that's it. He goes, it may be true. Maybe not. I don't know where they talk about, they die. They see the white light. And I get that because for all I know that could be due to, uh, what's called an an anoxia, where the, you know, the brain is deprived of oxygen and everything kind of gets squashed down to a pinpoint. Perhaps that's what that is. Maybe so, maybe not. He says, what I'm interested in, the ones that are very evidential, the one where the person has a near-death experience and they come back and they recount things they couldn't possibly know while they were out. So, you know, ones like where you have someone that they die and then they revive them and the person comes back and says, I was floating over my body. And it went up to the roof of the hospital. And by the way, on the roof of the hospital, there's a red head, there's a red high top over at this corner and they go and check it out. It's exactly like he said, or they talk about an accident that happened three blocks of blocks away and can describe everything in vivid detail. One, one story that I thought was very interesting, which was a, one of those evidential stories was a woman who was being operated on. And she said she was looking over her body, you know, and, um, you know, and she was just watching everything, you know, and it's always the same, it's always the same type of descriptions. They always, they always say it's, it's hard to describe, you know, you'll hear people so, trying to describe it and they'll be like, wait, no, that's not the right way to put it. Like they're searching for the words and can't find it. And many of them that have this, they say, it's not like a dream, like dream-like state. They say it feels more real than real. It feels hyper real. Whereas co- in comparison right now feels dreamlike, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it described the same kind of stuff. But this woman, there was this machine next to her bed that was like eight feet tall or whatever. And on the top of that machine was like a 12-digit a number. And she memorized it. You know. And, and when she came back to, she told the nurse, she says, what happened? And she goes, listen, she goes, I, I kind of have obsessive-compulsive disorder. She goes, I'll, I'll prove it. She goes, I was looking at my body and there's a number up there. And she gave her the 12 digits, the strings of letters and numbers. And later they rolled her out of the room. And later on, the, the technician came in and the nurse stopped him. She goes, oh, Hey, 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 before you move that machine, you're up on a step ladder. Is there a serial number on top? Because the woman had written it on a napkin and gave it to her. And he goes, Yeah. She goes, Can you read it to me? And he read it to her and it was every single number and letter to a T. And um, one of Habermas's grad students con- found a way to contact this nurse, you know, and uh, you know, they wanted to ask her about it. And she says, oh, my God, I'll never forget that day. That was the best day of my life. She goes, my world changed because now I know this ain't all there is. Hmm. You know, so um, there's stuff out there if you dig deep enough. Um, that's evidential. So, see, here's the thing. I think that God gives us just enough evidence so that those who want to believe can find their beliefs justified but not so much evidence that those who don't want to believe are forced to feign loyalty because a person changed against their will is of the same opinion. Still God wants free lovers. And I believe in in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, the apostle Paul tells the people on Mars Hill, something to this effect. He says from one man, God made all, all men and dictated the exact times and places they should live. So everyone would reach out to them. To me, this is what this suggests. It suggests that if God knows that you would freely come to him if the circumstances were available, he will make sure that you're in those circumstances. Um, so those are just a couple more things I can I can throw at you. Um, I'll stop there. Um, any questions?
1: No, I would probably have a question tomorrow morning when I woke up, and like after thinking about it. But, um, yeah, that was really interesting and I would love to have any resources that you have uh, to look at it.
2: Yeah. What I'll do is this, um, the, the best resource, honestly, the best resource I know is probably reasonable, reasonablefaith.org. I mean, you're going to get heavy hitting stuff on that. Um, you know, it, it can get pretty in depth too. So there are more, he, he, he offers more simple, um, gateway. Um, points. There's little cartoons that will kind of summarize in broad strokes some of the stuff that I've been sharing that are anywhere from like you know three to five minutes or whatever. Uh, what probably Janelle is wishing that I had done. Um, <laughs> so, so, Fifteen uh,
0: minutes. Fifteen minutes, Alan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, so so yeah, I'll send those to you too. So I mean, if you don't mind, I'll. I'll send you all sorts of stuff Um, and I'll kind of label it as beginner level, intermediate level, or what have you. Um, So that'll be helpful. Um,
0: Alan, thank you so much for being on here again. You are one of our favorites for a reason and um, I'm just, yeah, I'm grateful for you. (laughs) I'm grateful for your ministry. Uh, You know, our final question, it's always the same, but I'm going to change it up for you a little bit. I was thinking about this. Um, I always ask uh, this question at the end, the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards finding restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love of those gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ. And as you know, there are many others, which stands out to you the most in your life right now and why. But I want to ask it another way since I've asked you that so many times. Um, And this is a feeling question, and I know it's not your uh, strong place, but that's okay. Okay. Uh, what do you receive from relationship with Jesus Christ that you haven't found anywhere else?
2: Hope. I receive hope from him. I get meaning from him. Because here's the thing. You got to think about this. If, if there is no God, there is no objective meaning, value, or purpose in life. Um, Meaning has to do with significance, why something matters, right? By value, I really mean value and duties, um, you know, something good and bad, right and wrong. And by purpose, I'm talking about a goal, a reason for something. If everything's going to end in heat death, right. And we're nothing more than just like here today, gone tomorrow. Um, your life doesn't really have any objective meaning. It maybe have subjective meaning. And if you know what I mean by that, by by objective, I mean not dependent on human opinion. Like two plus two equals four is an objective truth, whether you like it or not. The moon is round is an objective truth, whether you believe that or not. Whereas subjective means dependent on human opinion. The moon is ugly is a subjective truth, not an objective one, right? Um, I don't think it's ugly. But the point is, if there is no God, your life is not objectively meaningful. You can give it meaning or make up some meaning, but you're really just pretending. Um, and it seems to me without God, the only way you can be happy is to be inconsistent. But if you are consistent, it's it's hard to see how you can be happy. Now, none of that proves or disproves whether God exists or not, but it does show what's at stake. Um so he gives me meaning. I'm able to make sense of objective moral values and duties. It, 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 it's real of purpose. It, there's a reason for all this. Um, and what this means is my life is missional. That there's a real goal to this life, not just something I make up to feel better about myself, but there's a real goal. And there's a real spiritual battle going on in the world. And unlike other religions... I can point to evidence as to why this is true. You don't find the evidence that you do in Christianity for any other religion. I dare you to show it to me. I haven't found it, but that gives me an immense sense of satisfaction. And that makes life worth living because I know at the end of the day, death is not the end. For the Christian, it's just a change in location. Um, and I think the idea of God and immortality I mean, everything. Some people say it's pie in the sky. Well, either the pie is there or it isn't. Don't just assume it isn't. And, and again, I'll, I'll go back to kind of what C.S. Lewis once said that I like. He says, if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance, nothing. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is just moderately important so I'll leave it at that. It gives me a tremendous sense of satisfaction and meaning and hope. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, there
0: you have it until next time. Thank you for listening to the finding something real podcast friend this season. We are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences, and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him.
2: Until next time.